Blog Talk Radio. today and yeah this is somebody who blew my mind when I met him and he blows my mind every time we uh, reconnect and we've had some fantastic uh, blog talk episodes with Brian Culkin who is a writer artist filmmaker and today he's here to speak about two books being released this summer there is no such thing as Boston gentrification and the disappearance of a city and postscript on boxing Digital Worlds, The Human Body, and the Death of Boxing, and I feel like Charlie Rose without the table or the studio, but that's okay, he's my hero, and it's always an intellectual challenge to listen to Brian because he's uh, extremely perceptive on society, life, uh, philosophy, theology, spirituality, uh, all of those things, so uh, he's going to join us in a few minutes, and uh I was just reading his blog. He's got a fascinating blog. You can visit his site at Brian Culkin, B-R-I-A-N-C-U-L-K-I-N.com. Uh, the article I was just reading, it was a fabulous piece on gentrification and very pertinent to where I am calling, well, where we're holding the studio today, which is in South Boston, Massachusetts, right on the bay, looking at uh, Castle Island and... Uh, so Brian's going to join us here in a, in a second or two. But in the meantime, I'm going to hear switch screens because I want to read uh, what he is saying. Uh, we're talking about <clears throat> the ideological changing of the guard. He's talking about South Boston and the invasion, as I call it, of the millennials. And he said... Uh, this is changing from Boston from an insular Boston neighborhood rooted in a particular ethical texture and possessing an orientation toward a disciplinary me- method of social regularization to its contemporary status as an empty container for pleasure fulfillment in unregulated social encounter. We come to the weird realization that a neighborhood such as South Boston represents a single contemporary space that is presently home to two modes of interaction. The first mode references that of the remains, the fragments, the quote-unquote original Southie residents representative of Boston's working-class roots whom we have managed, whom, who have managed to remain in their native neighborhood as the spiral of gentrification unfolds before them in a dazzling display of condo conver- conversions, lul- wow, lululemon pants, <laughs> and bearded hipsters. The second mode references the emergence of a diametrically opposed ideology, a type of city living and intersubjectivity rapidly materializing throughout the entirety of Boston. This second mode is correlative to the present-day urban 
uh, environment, now sat- saturated in post-industrial labor, decentered social constellations linked through vague digital and professional n- networks. And perhaps central to this type of interaction, a radical emphasis on individual autonomy versus any social cohesiveness. Wow, wow, wow. Hooray, Brian. A pathological distance to any claim of authentic neighborhood space of ethnic territory to distill what differentiates the first mode from the second, the pre-gentrified Boston to the gentrified Boston at the second mode. Contemporary Boston in its gentrified State holds an implicit belief that both the market and the actions of fully realized individuals can solve problems any better than any civic or collective social formation, such as the solidarity of a working class neighborhood. In the motto of this second mode, gentrified Boston, <clears throat> the lawn on D Street, the luxury condo on the second floor of an old trip is uh, Zizek, as Zizek claims, as the motto of contemporary. Global capitalism, you better enjoy. Let's see if Brian is here. He's here. I hope he heard that. Hey, Brian, did you hear me reading that? Um, I heard that, like, kind of the end of it, yeah. <laughs> okay, hey, welcome to the show, Brian Culkin, everyone. I've already introduced you and uh, re- read what you sent me. And we're, first of all, congratulations on the books. Great job. Oh, thank you. Well, yeah, they'll be out. This summer, so yeah, no. I'm, are you? Are, are you so. How are you publishing? Are you uh, doing conventional? Are you doing uh, self or? Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. Books like this. Yeah, I mean, I, I have the opportunity for conventional publishing, but a book like this, because it's like kind of a niche thing. I mean, and absolute for me, it's like I want to hold on to the content and just self-publish it because I'm not trying to like, you know, make my Good. living doing something like this. Um, yep. So yeah, it's just it's just putting it out there, and and um, and then in, co- in, in correlation with the other work that I do, the artistic work and film and stuff like that. Hopefully, people will start to read it. But um, yeah, yeah. Well, congrats. You know, I just spoke with, uh, as you know, I have a children's property, and I'm I'm uh, just finishing a, a novel, kind of a Harry Potter kind of fantasy novel about the characters in my property, and I called. Uh, uh, Fable Vision, which is right down on, uh, right actually in the muse- Children's Museum building, and they're a, they're a great educational and uh, children's media expert. They have an animation studio, games, whatever. And I asked mm-hmm. the uh, CEO Paul Reynolds what he thought about self-publication, and he said, "Listen, ten years ago it was just frowned upon. He says five years ago oh, yeah, it got yeah, acceptance. Yeah, yeah. Today." He said the um, best-selling authors are using self-publishing as a oh yeah that's a medium. No, the publishing industry is a really, I mean it's 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 bad. It's really bad, you know. And on many levels, I, I guess for a novel, if you got you know some big-time pub, obviously then you'd want to do it. And then you know like the certain mainstream cultural critical books that you'll you'll see from time to time. I mean these can be okay, but I mean. Overall, um, yeah, much yeah. It's it's kind of a the industry's not in good shape. That's for sure. Well, that's and yeah, sure. and, a, and and the and the artists and the writers with the with the valid message and a personal message of finding they don't want to compromise because the editors come in and, and start to dictate what you can and can't do. So, kudos. 
I, it's you know, probably less I, the editors I, than it would be like the publisher, but but yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I mean, like, yeah, no, it's uh, it's tough. It's tough, that's for sure. You know, but well, I mean, stuff like this for me, it's more. Um, I enjoy doing stuff like this, and it's just there, and it's and I think, especially for, you know, one of the texts, the gentrification text, I think, um, you know, just because I know a lot of people in Boston, um, it'll. People will read it, definitely. You know what I mean? And it's like, you know, a text like this, it doesn't really fall. I mean, yes, it's written in a certain, you know, you can say intellectual style, but it's definitely not academic or, you know, like sociological. It's it's much more of kind of like a creative reading of gentrification, more of an artistic, I'd say. Um, and it also looks at it, you know, I think to me, like gentr- like one of the problems with you know, quote unquote gentrification is that it like overwhelms us with facts constantly. You know, when I, when I say gentrification, I don't mean like turning a, a three family into a luxury condo. I mean, gentrification is like, ev- like life itself is becoming gentrified, you know, and that's kind of a combination of being totally um, seduced by digital technology all day long, like bombarded with like, thousands of advertising and Facebook, you know, all, you know, and then this exponential rise in debt and real estate price, you know, it's just kind of like this, this exponential rise of the market, essential market of technology. And this of course overwhelms the individual, not with truth, but with facts, you know, and most of the facts aren't even really factual. And it, it's, it's like this information overload. And, you know, one of the things, and, and Baudrillard, who was, you know, one of the great 20th century philosophers who just died a few years ago, I mean, he, he was very clear that we're, almost, we're, we're approaching a situation where it was almost like, you know, in the Middle Ages where the peasants didn't have access to any information. Having access to too much is almost just as bad because you, you are, you're not able to coherently think you're not able to understand like what's actually happening. So for me, like the way that I write this, it's way more, it's interested in truth. You know what I mean? It's interested in truth. And of course the problem with that today is like, you know, the like power says, well, there is no truth, right? They just say, you know, there is no truth and everything is fact, you know? So it's, it's, it's trying to reorganize how we think about things. You know what I'm saying? And it's like the problem if there is, let's say, a problem in gentrification, let's just say hypothetically the problem of gentrification in a neighborhood, let's just say like the North End, the problem is between the neighborhood North End guy, you know, like the 70-year-old Italian guy that's been living there his whole life, and the, the lawyer that just kind of, the lawyer from Madrid who just moved there and bought a condo. But to me, like, that's a false problem. Like, that's that's not the problem. The problem is to invent a new problem to talk about. I mean, that, that problem, you know, the yuppies moving in next door, that's, that's, the, that's the screen that masks what's really happening. You know what I'm saying? So I think oh, totally. um, if, if anything, what this book does is doesn't answer the question of gentrification, it gives you new problems to think about. You know what I'm saying? And I think that's ultimately what a good book, it doesn't give you answers, it gives you new problems. And I think that's kind of what this does in the sense that I change the conversation about what it is, you know? And um, it's well, also it's interesting just... to me too how, like, how 
little, you know, I mean, like you, you would think like, like the North End, like, you know, South Boston, like 50 years ago, or 100 years ago, if, if all these people tried to move in from the outside and take over the neighborhood, you would think there would be like, um, not, not, not you think, you know, there would be a pushback because there was a, a, you know, the people had neighborhood pride and community pride and it was kind of a defined space that had a certain ethical, you know, like an Irish, or down in Andrews Square, you had the Polish and Lithuanian contingency. But there was this defined ethical texture that, you know, people defended the territory. But now, and of course, you know, there's a dark side to that too back then. You had racism and, you know, all this other stuff. But um, what, you, what, what you really see now, it's like, it's, it's actually kind of sad. In this. I mean, I, when I was living in Southie last year, you know, before I moved to London, I would, I would go to these community meetings just because, you know, my, my dad's side of the family is originally from Southie and I, you know, know people and, you know, just know a lot of people there. So I would just go and, and sit there and listen. And it was, it was actually, it was really, it was almost like depressing in the sense that you had this unfolding process, you know, gentrification and you'd see people who were just like, really angry, you know, like really, and, and rightfully so, you know, and, but it was like throwing, um, you know, it was like throwing something against the wind. It, it wasn't working because the argument was a false argument, you know, and, and the argument is like, you know, we want the old selfie back or we want the old high part, whatever, whatever neighborhood that like to me, of course. Yeah. Why, why wouldn't anyone want their neighborhood back that they grew up in? But it's also a false argument because it's not addressing what gentrification is. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's missing the point of what's even happening. Because, like, when you look at, and I think probably South Boston is the best example of this, you, you look at South Boston and how it's been gentrified over the past, let's say, 10 years, really badly over the past 10 years. I mean, why, why did it become gentrified? Because of goodwill hunting, because of the departed, because of, you know, like, the, the culture of South Boston you know, the white working class tough culture that developed there, that was the thing that got people to go there and gentrify it. You know what I'm saying? So it's like yep. it's, it, it misses the whole point of what's actually happening in the sense that gentrification uses the people. It's, it uses your argument against yourself. You know what I'm saying? It uses, like, if you're fighting, let's just say you're a person from, let's just use South Boston again. You're a person from South Boston and you're fighting gentrification, hypothetically. What you don't realize is that gentrification is using you, who you are to beat you. You know what I'm saying? It's like, ah, come buy this house on East 6th Street. Why do you bother you live right down the street? And, you know, da, da, da. it's like telling me, like, Goodwill Hunting hung on over there. It's, it's using that culture. It's appropriating that culture to extract value, cultural value, not and, 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 yes, real value, too, I guess, if, if you call real estate prices value. I mean, to me, that's just market. That's not value. Anyway, whatever. But so the, the strategy immediately becomes, if you're really interested in providing an alternative to gentrification, is losing the we want the old selfie or we want the old this back. I mean, that, that is like, because when you do that, what you do is you, you actually add fuel to the fire. You, you actually, like, so it's, it's like if, if there was, like, a community meeting, let's say in, Char let's just say Charlestown now, right, and it was, 
there was going to be a huge development to go there, right? And all these, like the 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 remaining people who are originally from Charlestown, who have seen the neighborhood, like you know, over the past Charlestown again, it's it's been being gentrified longer than South Boston, probably maybe ten 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 or so more years, and they all showed up to the meeting and they were and they're like, you know, wearing you know Charlestown County T-shirts or the Shamrocks, and the, and they're like, we're, we're just sick of this. We're, you know, we, you know, basically we want the old child. I mean, that's like literally like adding gasoline to the fire. That's like, you know, giving the stamp of approval for the building simply because gentrification is fundamentally structured on that tension because it's like a, it's an abstract, it, it comes from the outside into the neighborhood. It needs attention to, it's, it's like the motor. It has to have people critiquing it and saying, no, we don't want it. So the trick, be, so yeah. what you have to do to, right. to really critique it is you have to invent a whole new problem. You, ha- you have to like totally think about it in, in, in a different way or it'll just be, and it's, I mean, to me, it's like kind of sad that all these neighborhoods are just being, I mean, and I, I mean, people know, but it's, I think like in 10 years, 20 years, I mean, you'll go through South Boston and it'll be, yeah, it'll I mean, unrecognizable. And, and it already kind of is, you know? but I mean totally un- unrecognizable. And um, yeah, so I mean, it's like, and that's just, you know, one of many things, but um, yeah. Well, well, it, it you know, living does here, that, and I've been living does, here does, since 87. Does that 87. make sense to you at all or no? Uh, I, 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 you know, this is like talking to a mirror for me. I, you, you know, I get the, I get goosebumps listening to you because it, it vocalizes and expresses and crystallizes everything, every thought, every emotion I have. I have the anger. I have, you know, these thoughts already formulated, and you elevate it. Your language is really poetry, and you, you know, I think that's what is so brilliant about what you're doing and bold about what you're doing is, you know, you're not just, you're not doing what you just described. You're not a South Boston resident, you know, vocalizing anger about this. You're saying, let's step, let's step up and o- take an overview of this and yeah. find out what's really going on, not just yeah, react well, to it. And, so you, and, you're moving and, forward. Yeah, and totally. Like some, I mean, of course, somebody will say, "Oh, what's this kid from Bernie writing a book about gentrification? He's not from Boston." But that that totally misses the point because gentrification is, you know, yes. Gentrification refers to, in a certain sense, a particular neighborhood in a city being transformed. Yes, that's true, but in a, in a much bigger sense of the word, gentrification is like a universal process happening to every... I mean, gentrification is what, it's what's happening, like the world being gentrified. You know what I'm saying? So it's like... Well, you know, you, the, you, the you word I was looking for, and you just said it, is it's a process. You're right. It's not yeah, a specific it's, it's a universal event. Process. It's a process. Yes. It's a universal process that has... That, yes, of course. It, it happens in cities, and that's where its material dimensions are revealed. When, you know, in Boston, you have the classic that the three families turned into condos. But, I mean, the reason why I personally am interested in gentrification is less so, you know, because I'm from the North End and I want to, you know, protect the North End. 
Um, it's more so it's like I'm a human being and I, and I want to protect my yes. humanity. You know what I'm saying? It yes. has nothing to do with, with me being from Amen. So far Amen. Or, Amen. Yeah. Amen. So, Say it, brother. It's right. I'm a human being and this is not human. Well, yeah, but like, the, but yeah, but like, some, now somebody would hear that and say, "Wait a second, are you saying, you know, a luxury condo is not human?" And of course, I'm not saying that. That has nothing to do no, with it. No, I'm it's, saying the process what, what, is not human. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the the process of gentrification, when you really think about what it is, when you truly think about what gentrification is, it's, and again, you you could give a hundred different gen- definitions, right? But I think what it ultimately does is it breaks down, like, you know, organic, if you want to use that word, but it breaks down social substance in the sense that, like, Absolutely, and that's what's so brilliant. Like, me and my neighbor are friends, and that's it. Like, we sit out, we we chat, we, you know, period. And what gentrification does is it, it puts the market in between you and your friends. So all of a sudden, yep. something is for sale now. It's, it's, it's no longer me and my friend next door go down to the park and shoot hoop or me and my next-door neighbor sit out in the lounge chair and talk about life. What gentrification does is two things. Number one, it says, well, you can't really sit out and talk about your lounge chair because you have to be doing something to be instrumental. You have to be making money. Like you have to go in the lounge chair and, like, create an app about how you can, like, make better lounge. You know, you know what I'm saying? It, it, like, just hanging out and talking when you're immersed in gentrified content is not acceptable. It's literally not acceptable. It's, it's so funny. I was just, in one of the essays that I write, I talk about basketball, like city basketball and how it's been lost. And there's this new basketball. It's called the 9450 ball. Uh, what the hell is it? Um, but anyway, it's this ball that has digital sensors all around it, right? And it's like it tracks everything that the person does. I mean, a lot of NBA teams and colleges have have this stuff now. And so it's like we come to an immediate problem here, right? Or, or, or an immediate question or, to, or an immediate kind of philosophical break. And so, but the first thing is, is like, okay, this ball is like a great example of the gentrification of basketball. Because like, when you, when you think of basketball, let's say in Boston, right? In Mission Hill, which is, you know, probably the best public housing project in the country. I mean, nine players drafted in the NBA. When you think of basketball in Mission Hill, when it was really at its peak period, let's say the 1970s, 1980s, and into the 90s, when it was just like, they, they were growing talent around there, like, just like every single kid that grew up there was like a possible Division One basketball player. It was just a ball and a pot and a pair of probably really cheap shoes because that place was, you know, impoverished back then, right? But it was, it was an action that, yes, it was instrumental in the sense that the kids wanted to get out of Mission Hill and get a college degree and stuff like that. But it was also spontaneous. And, like, you go to the park and you play, right? And it's like, now – the ball they use is just a regular ball. Now, if you take this new ball, right, the 9450 ball, and all of a sudden trans- transform it and give it to the kid in 1975 in Mission Hill, the whole thing changes. Because the ball, this ball that, like, tracks everything you do and tells you information, it's, it's, it's not a game anymore. It's, 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 a, 
it's a purely economic activity. It has nothing to do with like having fun with your friends and like going to the park and playing. It becomes a purely instrumental activity to get information about how you can be better. It's, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. Now, the problem with this, right, is that, yes, there's no question a ball like this for a coach or for a, a, a college or a professional team, yes, it can be very helpful. It can tell you information. It can give you insights. It can give you – but this is where we say, okay, yes, you get things from it. Yes, but what do you lose, though? What do you lose from it? And that's, and that's the thing with technology that it's just crazy. It's like, yes, you get – from Facebook, you get – the fact that you can talk to someone in China instantaneously, but you lose the fact that you can't talk to your neighbor who's sitting next to you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Amen. So it's like, so it's, it's a, we, like technology is like, again, and this is purely ideological. This has nothing to do with reality. This is an ideological construct that people just buy into. And, and it's that technology is a purely positive thing. It's a, especially digital technology because it, does, it doesn't have like, um, you know, like industrial technology had the smokestacks, and so you saw kind of a bad thing. With digital technology, it's presented purely positive. There's, there's no negativity to it. And so gentrification is a similar thing. It's, a, it's presented as a positive phenomena in the sense that it's just like it's the unfolding of capital, it's the unfolding of technology, and it's, a, and it's like so it's like, yes, you get the granite countertops and the stainless steel, but it's like, what do you lose? You know what I mean? And like, you lose, you lose so much. You lose so so much. And, you lose your humanity. And, 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 and when I say lose. what you lose, I mean you lose what it's like to be in a neighborhood, what it's like to have tradition, what it's like to have, um, you know, like a defined community with identity, yeah, like community, communication. Commu- I mean, these things are lost. Like totally Gone. lost. So it's Gone. like you get, yes, you get higher tax revenue. You get, like, there's no doubt. I mean, like, you do get, po- quote, unquote, positive things from gentrification. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, how can you not say that? Um, when you go down, like, let's say, D Street in, um, I mean, to, to see what's happened down there over the past 10 years in the Waterfront District, I mean, it's incredible, like, high-rise hotels and restaurants, da 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 I mean, that place was a wasteland 20 years ago. I mean, that was like, you know, 30 years ago. I mean, that, that area was like no man's land. And so it's like you, you cannot say, oh, it's so bad, da da da, da. The, 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 question, the question is, okay, so yes, that is there, but what did you lose? You know, what, 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 is, that, what is that masking? Like with all that glitz and glamour and everything that's there, what is it masking? What is it not telling you? That's the thing. It's like you shouldn't be asking, what does gentrification tell us? You should, you, that's the worst question to ask. You should say, what is it not telling us? You know, and that's where you start to get all this information about what, what it actually is and what it actually does to a neighborhood, what it does to a city, what it does to a person. Yeah, it's, uh, again, I get goosebumps because you're vocalizing everything that I think and have said. And, it, and you know, isn't it funny that, um, you know, the the reaction that I receive most of the time is, well, why, it's, look, it's changed, it's the way it is, why can't you just accept it, why don't you just shut up? 
And my yeah. reaction to that is, well, Germany, yeah, that's how Germany reacted to the Nazis. Uh, they <laughs> shut up, you know, and maybe, uh, the, and they'll say, oh, well, you know, but I think that's, that, that's it's a pretty inimical in ways. I know what you mean. And is, is, is deleterious in ways. Certainly, you know, we're not seeing the advent of uh, camps or anything like that, or, <laughs> but you're seeing alienation. We're seeing alienation. No, but I, I'm sorry. Yeah, no. I mean, like when 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 someone said, like, well, that that's good because like this book is definitely not bitching about gentrification. It has nothing to do with that. It's 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 more like having fun with it, talking about it, making fun. Of, I mean, really, what you want to do with gentrification is make fun of it. You don't want to take it seriously and like, you know, hey, you know, like, because like people do get annoyed. It's like, hey, this is this is, you know, it's like. There is there is something to be said about accepting the conditions of life, you know, it's like because it's like when you say ah this is bullshit I I want the old neighborhood back from 1974 or ni- whatever you know 1968 or 1985 there is something to be said about the person that says ah just you know be quiet it is what it is now I mean like that's true it's like it it is what it is and this and like the way I look at it is not to say let's critique it to the point of like just being angry at it. And it's, it's more to have fun and to like understand what's happening and then think about not a strategy of being angry and fighting it, but a strategy of, okay, what can we do that's even better? You know, what can we think about that's even better, you know? And I think that's, um, that's where it can be fun to think about it, you know? Right. Well, I think I mean, in, a, in order to perform, I mean, like, right. in I order mean, to perform like, any kind of healing, you've got to go in and find out what's, where the disease is. Yeah, definitely, for sure. And, and that's like for anything, you know? Exactly. And, you know, you have to point what the problem, what the disease is, how, what are the symptoms, what, what's affecting, not just to address, address the symptoms. And, you know, this is, it is very disturbing to me because I'm a people person and I... Um, you know, I've been called the mayor of, of City Point because when I'm out there, you know, watering my flowers, I'm saying hi to people and speaking. And what I saw in the in the 20 years plus that I've been living here, I can't do that anymore because the only thing going by me is a jogger with a headset in and uh, moving full speed ahead. No, no, I, I don't know how they train their eyes. It's amazing that the eyes will not deviate from a total straight ahead position so mm-hmm. um you are just i might as well be a lamppost and mm-hmm. so to to go from a place where you know we're human beings and you'll never be able to take away that component of us that wants to connect yeah and what gentrification is doing that process is taking away it's it's increasing but, but that digital connection running wants to connect deeply though that's i think that's the thing that we that we often miss is that like that person you know that person running with like the the, the dead gay straight ahead is probably you know whatever like overwhelmed with Dead or work or to the point where connecting. Oh yeah, to that exactly. Is, is like, well, it's, 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 it's not like that person's a jerk. It's probably more like right. She is it, you know, just, I, I've just evolved. So stressed out that they can't even exactly engage in that kind of exactly. Uh, I've gone in, in from that kind of intimacy. You know, exactly. I've gone from hate and anger to a sense of pity. I'm looking oh, yeah, at yeah. This is a pitiable individual because they have been sold 
just as you allude to in here, they're being sold an ideology. They've been sold that this is going to be good for you in this independence, yeah. this debt, this working, this job, living in the city. This is all good for you. Brian, after 8 o'clock at night, there's, I live in City Point, there's not a light on in any house here. Everybody's yeah. asleep. You know why? Because they got to get up at 5, and then they yeah. run. And then they stand in that cold bus stop, and they get herded in down a few miles downtown, and they're there for eight to ten hours, and then they get herded back, let's, and they that's run. What that's what they have in San Francisco right now. It's like, you know, you think it's bad in Boston. Yeah. I mean, the the, the I crisis in San that. Francisco is, is ten times worse. And, you know, it's interesting. In San Francisco, they, they don't even have the MBTA buses. They have, like, the Google buses that pick people up. Yeah. I mean, it's, like, really – it's um. It's obscene to the point of comedy. That I think I, I, I might have seen that on one of your posts. Yeah, it was frightening. Yeah, it I was mean, like it's, watching. I mean, yeah, you know, I, I watch a lot like of World pathetic. War II movies. It was like watching the buses take the Jews to the prison camps. Oh, I mean, it's, man, I don't know about awful. that, but it's. But I mean, <laughs> you know, um, in the sense that they've become, they've become robots. They become nothing but means yeah, of production. Yeah. 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 You know, no, it, you know, one of the sense, things we it's 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 a purely mechanical existence yep. with no um, spontaneity yep. or creativity yep. or individuality or solidarity. You know, I was or, uh, down. You know, you wonder why. You know, when you you look at the literature and the the language, and you look at the popularity of the Hunger Games, The Walking Dead, and you say to yourself, well, you know, why all of us. I was in town early one morning, and I saw from North Station, I was in between North Station and the Financial Center, and it was a nice day, and people were getting off the trains in North Station headed to the Financial Station, and they were all walking down the middle of the street, and it looked exactly like a scene from The Walking Dead. Mm. <laughs> nobody was happy. Nobody was conversing. They were trudging. You could mm. see it was just drudgery. And you look at mm. This is how people are feeling. I think people have this, this instead of a utopia, they've resigned themselves to, to a dystopia. And, yeah. and that's exactly what you're well, pointing that's, out. I mean, that's, that's kind of what's happening with Sanders and Trump right now in the sense that they're kind of awakening two different poles of this dissatisfaction that's kind of gripped, you know, um, certainly American culture, you know what I mean? In, in the sense that people are like, something's... something's as the old saying goes, something's rotten in the state of Denmark. And um, yep. I, I think what's happened with those two candidates, and, you know, they're the only ones, you don't see it with, with anyone else, is the sense that they have, they have kind of um, in their – see, what, what Sanders and Trump do is they both try to escape ideology in their own way. They both reject the kind of – dead-end mainstream political ideology that has really gotten us to this kind of, you know, totally apathetic, ridiculous point where we have like, you know, 20 trillion debt. I mean, just, just everything. And they're both trying to convey an escape. Now, Trump does it in like a totally obscene, over-the-top way. And, and I, even though I don't like Trump, I think what he does in that sense is really good. I mean, I, I think the way he talks to the media, the way he says outlandish things, even if they are outlandish, it, it's not so much the content of what he's saying is good. It's like how he says it. It's like 
he, she's shaking it up. Like that should be applauded, even if you're, you know, a liberal Democrat. That that should be applauded. And then someone like I totally Sanders. Agree. I I un, until recently I hated the guy, and now I have to stand back and first of all laugh because it is the ultimate showmanship. But he is he's shaking it up, and um and I have to applaud him for that. Yeah. No, I mean he he he. I mean he'd be. I mean for me at least he'd be kind of scary as president. But and then you have Sanders on the other side who's trying to do it in like a more humane intellectual. You know, I wouldn't say intellectual, but like pseudo intellectual. Um, Idealistic. You know, yeah. more, more more kind of refined way. But like my problem with him is like I don't really like either of them to be honest with you. It, it, right. I mean, if I had to pick one, I'd probably pick Sanders, but. He doesn't go far enough in terms of what needs to be said. You know, he he approaches certain things. And the other thing too, I find really funny about Sanders, and especially in Boston, because like you know, I'm like, like you know, all these kids that grew up from Braintree, like a lot of guys my age, you know, in their 30s, grew up in Braintree. You know, firefighters, cops, da da da. da. They, from what I can see, they hate Sanders. Like they're much more aligned to go with Trump. And I totally get why. I mean, I totally understand why they would go with Trump instead of Sanders. But at the same time, their grandparents were all FDR Democrats, every one of them. You know what I'm saying? And, and right. Sanders emerges from that line of political critique and political ideology. He's like emerging from this kind of like, you know, he calls himself a social Democrat, a democratic socialist or whatever. So he's emerging from like that FDR type of situation where he's trying to like fundamentally rein in the market. Like that's fundamentally like set up a series of institutional structures that curtail market excess, you know, trade barriers. All You know what's funny too about Donald Trump? His main economic policy, which I totally agree with, with him in terms of the trade stuff, that this country has basically like sold out our industry to China to you know to the whatever it's like and like you have like these factory ghost towns in Pennsylvania and Ohio what i mean Trump's position is purely left wing i mean it is like classic left wing in terms of like ending all these trade deals putting up tariffs bringing back production back to that i mean that is like left wing 101 and I find right. it totally comical that, like, nobody sees this and someone like Clinton, who says she's left-wing, doesn't, do, doesn't notice that. I mean, like, Clinton's position of, like, you know, NAFTA, the free trade, I mean, that is, like, the ultimate right-wing position. You know, like, full like, <laughs> globalization, like, market. It's, it's bizarre that Trump is... You, I mean, yes, there's no doubt a lot of the things he said, like these racist, these crazy things, you know, usually find themselves over on the right side of things. But his economics, the, again, not all of his economic stuff, but what he says about trade is, I mean, that should be unconditionally supported by Clinton and Sanders. And, and Sanders says it too to a point. Not, the funny thing is Trump says it like not from like a social humanitarian perspective. He says it from like a business like we got to bring the factories back so we can make profit here. You know, Sanders says it more of like a humanitarian perspective. We should bring it back because it's good for the communities and it's, you know, we don't, these poor Chinese, these poor 12-year-old Chinese girls working in factories, you know, we got to bring it back here. But, um, you know, like, so what, what they're both doing is they're both trying to escape ideology. 
They're both trying to escape. And that's a hard thing to do, man. Like, I mean, ideology is like a literal, I mean, it's like a mental prison because you don't even know you're in it. You know what I mean? That's the whole thing of it. Well, like, exactly. You're, that's, you're immersed you know, in that's what, right, that's what we're seeing now is these, I'm seeing these individuals, they don't even know what they're immersed in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's why you have that injunction from the gospel, forgive them for they know not what they do. You yeah, know, that's always yeah. you want to think about, you know? Um, yeah, and it's true, yeah. Yeah, no, that's yeah, absolutely it, true, you know? I think about yeah, that every and, day. Well, you, you know, I mean, one of the greatest, them, I remember reading then in the art of, um, uh, you know, from Alan Watts' book, and um, he, the first thing he says, the worst wars are not wars over resources or land. The worst wars are wars of ideology. Oh, yeah. I mean, every war is ultimately an ideological war, you know? Yeah. I mean, ultimately. I yeah. mean, but it's like all, like the, but it's like, you know, and and this is another thing that we talk about in the book a lot. Like ideology, it's never, you know, the outwardly stated, this is what we believe in. It's always the implicit secret what we what we do you know what i'm saying so it's like yeah. Clint, like a perfect example clinton's ideology is ah we believe in you know women's rights and that's her that's her stated ideology but then the secret part of it the real ideology is we believe in full-blown globalization so american corporations can set up a sweatshop in indonesia and hire 10 year old girls i mean that's the real ideology you know what i'm saying so yeah. <laughs> we always forget that ideology is Never, it's it's never what we think we're seeing. It's always the hidden supplement that's happening below the surface, right. and that's why you know to say Zizek again. He always, and this is it's so true. It's like any time you try to escape ideology, you're in it. You're when you try to escape an ideology into some fantasy, then you're in it even more. And it's like that's why it's like I like ideology isn't much of an escape it's a, it's a passing through it's a it's a moving through it because people try to escape it all the time and it's like the the moment you try to escape it you're in it even deeper because like because like ideology sets up these these kind of like fantasy spaces that when you think i mean i think yoga is real now like yoga studios in cities right now an ultimate ideology because like yep when you go in there, like, you think you're, like, leaving the system and, like, you know, doing yep. this thing that's, like, but it's, like, you're in the system more than ever when you go into one of those places. Yep. I mean, you are in the, you are in the system. Yep. But it's, like, and so, so it's purely, and this isn't, I mean, I do yoga a lot, you know, at my home, by myself. I think it's a great thing. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying it's, like, the cultural practice of yoga, how it's, you know, now it's, like, if, if a neighborhood's gentrified, there's probably three yoga studios in the neighborhood. It's a guarantee. And yoga positions itself in the city, in contemporary American cities, yoga's like, ah, I come here and, you know, you have this spiritual awakening and you can leave the, you know, the horrible system of, you know, all these people. That, but it's like, no. Like, that, that's the ultimate, that, like, that is pure ideology in the sense that, you go to the yoga studio in, in, in downtown Manhattan or Boston, you are in the center of, you, you are like not escaping anything. You are going into the beast, belly of the beast. You know what I'm saying? And irregardless of like spiritual language that they might use, it, it masks what's actually happening is that 
you're entering into ideology, mainstream ideology, you know? And totally, and it's, as we talked about the last time, it's totally tribal. What, what's tribal? Uh, the, the new yoga movement. You know, it's tribal we do yoga, it's one more thing that elevates us and separates us. Yeah, I mean, like, it, it's tough, man, because, I, I mean, again, it's like, it depends on how you do it, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you can say that about anything, but it's like, but it's like, like, to me, like, the way I look at yoga, it's like, it's like, um, it's, people, it's, it presents an ideology to the contemporary urban dweller, the contemporary person living in the city. It's like, it, 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 it presents an ideology where a person it, it basically it does the exact same thing that a parish church did in 1925. It's, it does the exact same. It, it claims to do the same thing, right? That if you go there, you can find community, you can be connected spiritually, you can you can be grounded, you can you know withstand the you know the the, the pressures of day to day life. I mean, it it functions in a similar way. So right. Yeah, so it's like it's, excuse it's, me, but it's, all it does is it becomes a panacea. It becomes a pill. They yeah, go there, and, and they're so stressed out, and then they jump right back into the cesspool yeah, the next day. Yeah, they accumulate all the yeah. stress, and they think that this pill is going to take it when there's nothing really going on inside. You know, there's no, no it's, real. It's change. funny. I say in the book, like, and it's kind of interesting how, like, in the 1920s when it was like, you know, American cities like these really rigid places and that you know everyone had their roles and you had your nine to five job yoga would have been great back then i mean that that right. would have been the time to to put a yoga studio in 1920 south boston i mean you know it would have been nobody probably would have went but the people that would have gone would have been like you know like had this way to deal with this like really strict life and you know all these like really formal regulations and now it's like I to me the strategy now of, of how to deal with you know the world is not yoga it's go, like go to mass every day or something like that go go to like a grounding kind of practice that gets you like because like think think about what the economy does to you every day it sends you in like thirty different directions it's it's, it's like and that's why the word flexible is like like they like corporations say now. Our workers have to be flexible, you know, like we have to right. be flexible. And that's, and right. so it's like, so like yoga does this. It's like, of course, it's like you go there to be flexible. So like what we need now, what I think is like we, we need to be more rigid now. Like we need to be able to withstand this constant press on us to change everything every, every two days and to, we we have to find a way to hold our ground, not become more flexible. We're we're way too flexible. You know what I'm saying? So it's like we we have to find a spiritual way to to maintain our strength and our ground and our you know like not rigidity to the point where you can't move, but just like to hold to hold your position. So I think yoga, in a way, can it kind of accelerates that hyper flexibility that that corporate power wants you to have. You know. I agree. I, I, you yeah. know, you're right. We need we need more of a discipline, more traditions, more something that is a constant in this totally, you know, rapidly changing uh, system right now. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and you're right. Yeah. So this 
All of a sudden, yoga, yeah, yoga is not for the, <laughs> yoga used to be for the spiritual seeker. I mean, it probably still is. I mean, I'm sure people do it, but it's, I mean, but it, but it, but it also has this whole industry around it right now, this whole culture industry yeah. that, that's based on a profit motive. You know what I'm saying? Exactly, and it's which yoga? Is it Hatha yoga, or is it Kundalini yoga, or is it uh, power yoga, or is it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's the new yoga, we've got the new yoga, which is better than the other oh, yoga. Oh yeah, it's like a supermarket. Oh, please, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, whatever, I mean, you know, I, I don't want to. Yeah, whatever, but, yeah. you know, I, I, again, I, I think the work you're doing is, these things have to be, Address because I think what I'm seeing, and I'm starting to, you know, when I saw the invasion of the millennial joggers into Southie, and uh, it wasn't who cares if they're jogging or not, but the fact that they can totally shut you out, worse is that they will actually collide with you and never mm. stop to say and just physically hit you and then just keep going. Not yeah. excuse me, nothing. You don't. You would just. Mm. You might as well have been a branch and a tree. And so that's the kind of thing that you know. You, you want to be recognized as a human. You know, we all do. We want to. You know, I exist. I think you want to say <laughs> to people. You know, I do exist. And when you yeah, see this with with your neighbors, yeah. yeah, of course, you know. Yeah, and when you see this wave of and everything, everything about them, their body language, their actions attitude, whatever, says, no, you don't. You don't exist. Mm. You, you have yeah, no but, use but I, to I, me. I think it's unfair to say it about them because that's kind of what, that's what they're being told at work every day and, like, by society. You know what I'm saying? I, I think, like, yeah. it's it's less so, like, the individual person. Oh, exactly. Yeah, of course They've been hypnotized. It's, but it's, it, it's more like this is what society is saying to people. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, yes. And, yeah, and it's like, you know, like everything has become so instrumentalized that it's like if you're not part of the way I can make money or like it's, you know, achieve right. something exactly. formal, then like exactly. you're not really part of my life. If I can't life, optimize you know? this, if you can't optimize yeah, opt- my revenue or my I mean, profit oh my God. I center. I saw this thing on Facebook the other day and it was this guy, it was like one of these stupid things, like it's sponsored, it's on my feed, it's like some sponsored thing. And I like torture myself and go to it just to look at it and it was like, how to optimize love. And it was like, oh my God. Yep, it was like, there you go. And, and the guy was serious. Go. He was like, he was like, how to optimize falling in love. And it was like, wow. Yep. It's like, and it's like, I mean, like that is just like, it's like scary, man. It's like scary. Well, I mean, you it's know, like, it's, uh, I mean, like falling in love is like probably the ultimate spontaneous organic. Yeah. You can't, I mean, yeah. like, it's just, it just, it just happens you can't to manipulate. Well, expected. everything has to be controlled, right, and manipulated. Exactly. Well, I it, mean, you know what's funny, too? And again, Zizek and Alan Badu, you know, I, I totally, when they, when they said, said this, I totally agree with him 100%. It's like these, like, uh, Match.com and Tinder and all these things, they really, what they do, when you look at it, they do almost the exact same thing as, like, you know, a thousand years ago with, like, arranged marriages. They they absolutely, like, at a structural level, even though, it, 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 like, you know, back then it was, like, this formal families, you know, doing it, and now it's, like, this free-for-all technology thing. But what they, but what both have in common is they try to prevent or try to mitigate 
the chaos that happens when you actually fall in love with somebody. You know what I'm saying? It, 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 like, it tries to regulate the process so you can go through the list of people. Ah, she's maybe a little bit too this. She's a, you know what I mean? And then you find, ah, that could be the one where I could maybe, you know, find. It does the same thing versus, like, you know, just, like, walking down the street and, like, you know, and, like, and like the age of the romantic period, and like, you know, let's say the 1800s, like, falling in love. Like, that's what, I mean, that's what novelists and poets would, would tell people to do. You just, you meet somebody and it's, like, this explosion of feeling and, and, you, and you fall head over heels. That is, like, and, and to me, like, losing, I mean, we are losing that in our society. Oh, we are absolutely you, losing you know, that, I, that kind I of can, idea of, like, If I can jump banana. in, right, if I can jump in for a second, I'm a big fan of Downton Abbey, and I started yeah. to analyze why. And Julian Fellows is a genius storyteller. And in the last episode, couple of episodes, Mary, who is the older sister, is fallen, has fallen in love, and she's quantifying it. She's doing exactly, you know, what you're talking about. So she's saying, well, my first husband died in a car crash. This is guys, I don't want to be hurt again. And so one of the other protagonists, um, the Irishman who, who married into the family and lost his wife, her sister, said, look, that's what life is, is getting hurt. So he breaks down that barrier. So then she retreats mm-hmm. because she doesn't want to be vulnerable. She retreats to the arguments. Well, he was born in good breeding. However, he's not of our status and he is doesn't make enough money. And I all of a sudden, <laughs> boom boom boom, I started to hear what I hear all the time in America. We start to you know, do they fit my social structure? Do they make enough money? Blah blah blah. And so finally Maggie Smith, who was the matron, comes back and says to her, Nobody cares more about status and money than I do. But when love comes along, that takes all of that takes a back seat. And you could see yeah. She finally broke down, and Mary broke down, and I said, there's the problem right there. What, what, that process of trying to quantify it all to see if it'll work as opposed to yeah. what's really love. Yeah, I think, I think in, like, Tinder, it's less so, like, class, and, you know, because that's kind of gone in America today, but it's more so, like, um, it's, it's, it's more so, like, emotional intimacy. Like, you know, this person might not, you know, bring up all my stuff as bad as that guy. I think I'll, you know, or, or that girl, you know what I mean? And it's like, uh, right. so yeah, I mean like arranged marriages back in the day, they were set up just to like ensure like the orderly passage of property and, you know, in kind of right. that patriarchal society. <laughs> and today it's, it's obviously not like that, but those that the Tinder and the match, they're set up just so like, number one, they can monetize the interaction. But number two, it's like to prevent people from just like walking on the street and like all of a sudden meeting, meeting the person of their dreams and falling in love and like, you know, like quitting their job and like, you know what I'm saying? It, it, it regulates the interaction. So it's like, it's actually, to me, it's like those sites, I don't know, man, like they're, I mean, yeah, it's, it's the gentrification of love basically. I mean, that's really what it nope. is. You know, when you, when you look at what they, what they ultimately do is they take away Spontaneity, authenticity, yep. intimacy, yep. Yep. humanity, basically. They you know took away life. <laughs> they took away life, you know, and it's like, and it's comical too. I mean, it's like, it's, I mean, Tinder's like the, like the, the radical obscene version because it's just like a, a binary swipe, I think, left or right. Um, wow. So, yeah, it's, it's, um, no, I was doing for one of the essays a, a different project I'm I'm working on. 
I wanted to know what it was, so I went on it for like a couple of days, like last year or so, and it was like horrifying, you know. But I just wanted to see what it was, what it was like. But it's, it's like, um, it's not even like, like a maybe thing, you know. Like ah, maybe I like this person, maybe I like that. It's, it's just like yes or no. You know what I'm saying? So it like really reduces right. a very complex social thinking, a gray area, a fundamental gray area. I mean, I mean, no, like love is not a gray area. It's the ultimate black or white. But I mean, like, like engaging with people, right, is a gray area. And this tries to just like black and white it. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. Oh, anyway, man, thanks, thanks for having me on today. I really, it's great to talk to you. Absolutely. You know, I, I, I missed what you just said there. No, I said thanks for having me on today. It was, it was oh, good, it was I, good, um, good. Uh, it's, it, it <laughs> from the spiritual context, I, I see you appear, and it's a manifestation of all my beliefs and confirming, and again, you uh, are a master, uh, master communicator, and uh, truly an artist in every way, and your language is so, uh, so a, a, a normal, you know, it, it's an anomaly today because it doesn't. This, this kind of language, this kind, you elevate it to a point where it's a joy to read and it's a it's a challenge to read, and you make people actually think, and more importantly, you make people feel. So you know, keep up the great work, and any time. Yeah, that's um, that's way more important than thinking. Feeling is what you want to make people exactly, do. Exactly, you know? of course it you is. Know? And, and, you, and, and, think you know, way too much. Well, I think way too much. You, Jesus Christ. Exactly. Well, when I looked at this program and Julian Phil, I mean, he he punches you in the chest. He makes you. He makes an emotional connection. I was actually sobbing at these these people coming to realize and watching her break down and realizing she was really just trying to protect herself. And what I started to look at these people, these runners and things, they they're shutting themselves off uh, in all the senses because they don't want to feel. They're afraid to feel. And I and I really came away with something saying, you know, America is heartbroken right now. Oh yeah. Oh my God. America Absolutely. has lost I mean, its heart. Yeah. They're heartbroken. Yeah. They're heartbroken in every way. They're heartbroken yeah. in love. They're heartbroken by the trust that's been broken with it. They can't have no faith in any of the institutions. Yeah. They've been lied to. They've been used, and they don't know what to do. And so. You know, maybe this is where you go, and maybe we could even co-author something about the fact that all of this technology masks that. It's the ultimate pill. It's the ultimate drug. I don't have to pay attention to these feelings. Yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, I mean, obviously there's there's positive aspects to it, but there's a big, big dark side that is not accounted for. What these of what network technology has done to the economy and um and people people's hearts you know yeah, well but anyway but though, you man, know something I, thank, if you had you. if you had a well-adjusted but, individual in, in an enlightened individual they could they could uh appropriate it and and, and use it accordingly but no you take a person who's suffering who's lost, who hasn't had those connections, those traditions you're talking about. And the biggest tradition of all, and it's my biggest complaint, is family has been shot. That structure, Absolutely. But you're right about the other structures, but that one has yep. been decimated. decimated. And if you don't have that, and you start, you, you start giving people technology to keep them distracted, 
You're right. You got a ton, you got a bomb in your hand. Yeah. You well, know? that's that's so, kind of what, what what Trump and Sanders are in their own way. They're kind of like they're, oh they're yeah, I love social, it. Ex, they're kind of ex, social explosions waiting to happen. Yep. And um, they are the voice of the discontent. I mean, and they're the majority. I mean, Sanders is going to beat Clinton. I mean, I I don't think she's going to beat him. I think he'll eventually. I mean, he won Michigan last night. That was a shocker. I mean, her. Wow. She was up, great. She was up close. Um, I think like twelve points in the polling, and he won. So I mean, I I think that. Woo. Yeah. A- anyway, thanks. Thank, thank, thank hey. you, Tom, for having me on. Okay. Brian, anytime. Please come back. All right, man. Bye. Thanks. Bye.